1: Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com.
2: In August 1572, a marriage was arranged for Marguerite de Valois, daughter of Henry II of France and Catherine de' Medici, and the sister of the incumbent French king, Charles IX. Her husband was the Protestant Henri de Navarre, and the wedding took place in Paris at Notre-Dame. The union was an attempt to bring peace between the warring confessions, or denominations, but it wrought the exact opposite. To mark it, all the aristocracy of France gathered in Paris, and a group of Catholics decided to use the opportunity to assassinate one of the Protestant, also called Huguenot, leaders, Admiral Coligny. That attempt was discovered by the King who, extraordinarily, decided the best way to prevent further trouble was to eliminate the Protestant leadership, beginning with Coligny himself. So on the 24th of August 1572, St Bartholomew's Day, a detachment of royal guards killed Coligny and flung his body in the street, where a Catholic crowd triumphantly mutilated it. Now crucially, the Parisian Catholics had misunderstood the King's orders. Rumours suggested that the king had commanded them not to kill all the Protestant leaders, but all Protestants. So over the next four days, ordinary Catholics sacked the houses of the Huguenots and brutally butchered their inhabitants. From Paris, the violence spread to at least a dozen provincial cities, and perhaps some 10,000 victims died in all. And over the Channel in England, a woman called Anne Dowrish wrote a book about it. Today, we're going to be talking about French Protestants, bloody massacres, and female writers. Dowrich's French history is one of the few 16th century books written entirely by a woman. It's perhaps hardly the sort of book you might have expected a woman to have written, and it has largely been overlooked by all but a very few scholars. But my guest today has not overlooked it. She is Dr. Joanne Paul, Senior Lecturer in Early Modern History at the University of Sussex. She was a BBC New Generation Thinker in 2017 and has published wonderful works on the Thomases, Moore and Hobbes and is writing an eagerly anticipated book about the Dudley family. Hi, Jo. Hi, thanks for having me on. Thank you for coming to talk about this amazing book. I suppose the first question to ask is, why do you think it has been ignored or overlooked? It has been dismissed. People who have looked
1: at it have called it unskilled, uninspired. And I think that has a lot to do with the fact that it's written by a woman. Sometimes people dismiss women and their ideas. Throughout history, it happens And even those who have looked at it have often looked at it because it's written by a woman and therefore have assigned it a very specific gendered space. It's considered to be a text of personal piety, of religion, and then therefore has been dismissed for what I think is really important political historical content. Do you think also the
2: fact that it's in verse has something to do with it?
1: Absolutely. The whole thing is written in rhyming verse And a lot of commentators have noted that it's not the best poetry in the world, and it isn't. I'm not gonna sit here and try to defend the poetry of it. And I think that has led to its dismissal. It's considered to be unartistic. That, I think, though, belies the fact that there is this fantastic contents in there that has links to Machiavellianism, has links to the relationship between England and France, the end of the 16th century, Elizabeth's place in the European wars of religion, so much else as well.
2: Yes, and actually it makes me think of another 16th century text in verse which is a poem on the life and death of Anne Boleyn by Lancelot de Carle it was overlooked for a long time as well because it was written in verse and because there's this uneasy relationship for scholars who've been sort of brought up in a 19th century tradition about writing about history and what really happened here you've got a document that's kind of fabulous that's kind of factual and you can't really work out what it is And so it's uncomfortable, perhaps. I think it sits
1: at the centre of a lot of disciplinary boundaries, and that's made it often very difficult. English lit scholars who might look at it might assess it for its value as a piece of poetry. Political historians who might look at it might assess it against the truth of what actually happened, and there it might fall at that hurdle as well. But I think we're coming to an approach now that allows us to look at it without trying to find a disciplinary place for it and understanding that those disciplines and those categories are of our time and not of hers.
2: Yes, I think that's right. And do you have any idea why it was written in verse? She talks about in the dedication and
1: the address to the reader about wanting to, first of all, sort of play around with poetry and learn it. Like many humanistically trained writers in the period, this is an exercise in many ways, and her attempt to grapple with poetry. But she also talks about defending poetry. And you might think about other defenses of posy in the period, this attempt to rescue poetry from derision, essentially. And so she's trying to pull poetry out of that, that sort of relegation to being lewd, for instance, and being related to romantic and even sexual themes
2: and trying to bring it back to something that she sees as very holy. So actually she's doing something very much of the Renaissance, very much a classical idea about poetry, which is that you can use poetry amazingly to train up the governing classes, that it's central to the teaching of rhetoric, and that's what politicians, people who will go on to be politicians, have been trained in. And rhetoric is also a way of making you virtuous. So you go to university and you can go from being a lowly man to becoming a gentleman, because poetry and rhetoric together have polished you. Anyways, so we've gone off on this flight of fancy about verse, but I suppose we should dial back and say, who is Anne Dowrish? We don't know that much about her. She was born probably
1: in the 1550s. She appears to have been fairly well-educated. Her father leaves a provision in his will for her education. And that's, of course, evidenced by the text itself. She marries a minister, a rector in Devon and becomes a clergy wife. And then in 1589, she publishes this text. She's also a mother. She has approximately six children and appears to have been pregnant while she was finishing this book, which I think is a really interesting piece of context as well. And then we don't know when she dies. She appears to be alive in 1614, she's mentioned. And that's all we have. And that's one of the challenges of working on a female writer at this time. There's just so little context to go
2: on. In fact, by comparison to so many women at the time, we actually know quite a lot about her because she's produced this text at all, I suppose. But you're right, even then, even someone who's published a work we still don't know basic things about her like when she died
1: yeah and she's not from these sort of noble classes her family is sort of middling to high in terms of the social hierarchy they had connections very royal connections in earlier generations by the time it comes to Anne Dowrich those have sort of dried up her brother is an MP and so is in sort of Cecil's circles but is not very well connected And so because of this, we have even less than we would if she was, you know, many writers from the time are queens and princesses and everything else. And we have a bit more for them. For her, we're really trying to piece things together.
2: So was her level of education unusual for a woman of her social status?
1: Well, again, we can only guess at what her level of education really was and how much she received as formal taught instruction and how much she picked up on her own. And because there's so little publication of other women, it's really hard to know how exceptional she was. She was exceptional in the fact that she did publish a book. And so we do have that piece of evidence to know that she was fairly well-educated, even very well-educated, but how that compares to others in her circle, it's really hard to know. There are other manuscripts that women in her circle did produce. They weren't published in print. And there does seem to be a lot of education, especially amongst Puritan women, which she is. And as part of the Protestant Reformation, there is more emphasis, especially on spiritual and scriptural education. And she's very, very well (laughs) versed in scripture. Um, As you can see from the marginal notes on the text, there's constantly references to verses in scripture. We might feel surprised, I think, at the level of her education and the fact that she is able to produce this book. But I would be a little bit wary about assuming that there aren't other women who are this level of education and of writing skill at the time. We just don't have the evidence of it
2: as we do for her. So, knowing we were going to talk about this, I've had a look at a copy of this and looked at its wonderful title page. So it says, The French History. That is, a lamentable discourse of three of the chief and most famous bloody broils that have happened in France for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Interesting indication there about why she's writing. And then it starts with a rather spicy dedication to her brother, Piers Edgecombe. Tell me what you make of this. I think she's telling him
1: off. You really get a sense of energy behind this dedication. And she gives a sense of the purpose for writing, which is to edify the souls of England. She's particularly talking about Protestants, of course, and probably even within that Puritans. But she does seem in the first lines that she's telling him off for not doing a good enough job. And I get the sense he is connected. He's an MP. He has some connections, as I said, with William Cecil, Lord Burley. And I think she's telling him off for not doing a good enough job. She talks about nature and custom and politic affections and this idea that he's been sort of blown off course and needs to remember what really matters. And I think there's a larger context for this, which is that in Parliament that year, the Lord Chancellor had tried to persuade MPs to move past religious divides. And there was also a growing suspicion of Puritans as traitors just like Catholics were, and sort of this equivalency between Catholics and Puritans. And I really think that Dowrich is saying to Piers, look, you've got the privilege of being there. You need to do something with that. And I am going to remind you of the Puritan cause and of the Protestant cause, and to not be led astray by these political connections that you have and the culture of the court and of the parliament.
2: I suppose it might be worth thinking about the broader context as well, which is that we are in July 1589, at least that's the date given on the text, and perhaps we should think of what happened in the previous year. We've just had the defeat of the Spanish Armada, and how much do you think that context is playing into what she's writing? Absolutely. There had been
1: a whole string of events up till 1589, starting with the execution of Mary, Queen of Scots, as you say, the Spanish Armada and this real threat of Catholicism within England. Elizabeth had started her reign with this sense of compromise that's breaking down by the late 1580s very strongly. And we might look at the defeat of the Spanish Armada and say, oh, you know, that's it. (laughs) Elizabeth has won. That's the big moment. But that's very much with hindsight. And at the time they were bracing themselves for further armadas as indeed there were. And someone like Dowerich who's on the coast, living on the coast in Devon or very near the coast would have been very well connected to all of these naval battles, to the piracy and everything else. So this sense of tension and of coming to a climax really in the conflict in England is I think very present in this text. We also know with hindsight that Elizabeth lives for another decade and a half, roughly, but they didn't know that that was necessarily going to be the case. She hasn't got an heir. That's still very much a live question. So all of this has a sense of urgency,
2: I think, about it as well. In fact, it's probably even more of a sense of urgency about her not having an heir as she gets older. And her ability to have an heir is Diminished. Yeah, by 1589,
1: it's very unlikely that she's going to produce an heir of her body. And of course, she hasn't chosen an heir at all, whether that's James up in Scotland, or one of the many other contenders, she hasn't chosen anyone. And so the fear that the Catholics are going to either invade or succeed, by whatever means, still even maybe even marry her, is very live. And Dowrich seems very terrified of the incursion of the Catholics. And so the Catholics are very vilified in
2: this text. And you mentioned that she was a Puritan in this age of religious division, because most people have heard of Puritans, but it might be helpful to set up what Puritan means in the context of Protestant or what it means in the context of Huguenot. And are these all the same thing and all the rest of that? Could you explain that to us? Dowrich is writing at a time when Puritan is still a very
1: new idea. And so the idea of a Puritan as being something very, very different is developing at the time. I'm sometimes uncomfortable a little bit with calling her a Puritan because it has these later associations of these people who arrive on the Mayflower and everything else. But it's still sort of being worked out at the time. We call her a Puritan because her husband writes a text. The Jailer's Conversation, to which she contributes a poem, which is very Puritan in its sentiment, which means it takes Protestantism essentially to an extreme, especially of austerity. Protestantism was associated with darker colors, objections to revels, objections to the sort of superstition of Catholicism, which of course all Protestants shared, but Puritans took it to the next level. And so Dowrich appears to be of that persuasion, though we don't actually see a lot of evidence of that in this text. So I do use Puritanism, and I think that that is right to apply to her, but we do have to be a little bit careful with it and understanding that it's still an idea very much in development in the 1580s.
2: Yes these categories are sort of being painfully created as opposed to already existing although whenever I think of Puritanism I remember H. L. Mencken's caustic remark that Puritanism is the haunting fear that someone somewhere may be happy. Let's think about what she has to say then so she looks at three different tragedies but perhaps we should focus on that final one the Saint Bartholomew's Day Massacre of 1572. How does she describe it what does she have to say about it? She sets it up very much as a result of the machinations
1: of the Catholics in power. And as I said, a lot of the text is her articulating speeches of other people, which of course are entirely fabricated. But there's a truth that she's trying to get across, which is not historical truth. It's a sort of religious moral truth. The devil is a character in this history. The devil tempts Catherine de' Medici, who then persuades the king and the court to massacre the Protestants. What's I think really interesting is that the devil speaks in terms of Machiavellianism, and one of the major speeches of the piece is Catherine de' Medici essentially quoting from Machiavelli, And it says right in the margin that Machiavelli was her teacher. And this is actually the first instance we have in the English language of Machiavelli being in print. She's the first one to do it. And she's drawing from a manuscript of a translation of a commentary on Machiavelli, which hadn't even been published yet. And so it's this first published association between Machiavellianism and Catholicism, which becomes really important and pervasive throughout the rest of the 16th and into the 17th century. And so it's all really laid in the hands of this Machiavellian Catherine de' Medici, which a lot of people have commented on. Of course, here's a female writer writing about a woman who's seen as the pivotal figure in what transpires, who's also then living under a queen who has a choice to make. And so it's often seen as counsel's
2: advice to Elizabeth I as well. So it's important because of this amazing first reference to Machiavelli in English and it's talking about this massacre. What does she have to say about the massacre itself? She describes it in very vivid terms and she
1: has obviously done her research in terms of drawing on witness accounts, on other histories to try to pull together the stories of as many people who are massacred during these events as possible. Her text is really a martyrology. She's trying to tell the stories of these people. And she compares it to Fox's Book of Martyrs, which is widely read in the Elizabethan period. And so it's almost a social history in a way. She's trying to tell the stories of the everyday people who are affected on the grounds. But As I said, it's been called this piece of sort of personal piety. But when you read it, I mean, it's extraordinarily violent and gruesome. And she really, I think, wants to communicate the violence and the cruelty of the event, not just to paint those who are executing it as evil and as associated with the devil and cruel and everything else. But more importantly, I think, to raise up the stories of those who are in her mind martyred. And to use them to give a sense of sort of strength and inspiration to English Protestants. But yeah, it's very gruesome reading, actually.
0: Okay, Tristan, you got 50 seconds. Go. Right, so Dan's given me a few seconds to sell the Ancients podcast. What is the Ancients, I hear you say. Well, it's like Dan's show, except just ancient history. We've got the groundbreaking new archaeological discoveries. This seems to be the oldest known dated depiction of the animal world, as far as we can tell, anywhere
2: in the world. We've got the big names.
1: It's one of these great things, Pompeii. It's kind of forever
2: rising from the dead and from destruction.
0: We've got the big names. Topics. The man destroys seven legions in a day. No one in history has done that. Subscribe to The Ancients from History Hit wherever you get your podcast from. Oh, and Russell Crowe, if you're listening, we would love to have you on The Ancients. Spread the word, people. Spread the word. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's, a, it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com.
2: I feel like I'd be letting my listeners down if I didn't ask you to quote some of that so that we get a sense of what she has to say. From hell, to stop the course of
1: God's afflicted word, so quickly did these hellhounds put these people to the sword. Here some that prostrate were and did for mercy cry, and others some unto the Lord that lift their voices high. They killed not, but did their hands cut off at first, and after chopped in savage sort with blood to quench their thirst. Such shrieks and wailing cries from prisons did rebound, that every corner of the town might hear their woeful sound. The mournful mothers wept, whom nature did compel, to see these hounds before their face, their loving babes to quell. The tender infant doth for help to father cry. The woeful father cannot help
2: his child before he die. That's really interesting because you've got, first of all, the dehumanisation of the Catholics, so they're referred to as hounds twice, aren't they? And then... Obviously, you've got this natural mother and the infant and the father, the standard caring, loving, natural family by comparison. And it reminds me so much of some of the other texts like Bartolome de las Casas, who was writing about Spanish treatment of the natives of the Indies. And he writes this sort of polemical text about what's happening there and describes the massacres in great detail. So there's a tradition of describing massacres in 16th century Europe. Do you think she's drawing on that at all and drawing on these kind of themes of let's call this person an animal and a beast and let's paint this innocent mother here, etc.?
1: I think so. I think it's really interesting what you said about the natural family, because, of course, that's very central to Protestant ideas, this idea of the holy family. And it is being disrupted. And this idea of nature versus this very unnatural, hellish and unhuman force that's meeting it. She's certainly drawing on a wide variety of sources, but only provides citations from scripture. So we can only guess what she is reading, what she's drawing from. Though we do know there is that one mention of Fox's Book of Martyrs. I think that that's a really important text for her. It is also as well, very descriptive in terms of the violence, very clear in who is the enemy to God and who is God's people. And I think if she had had recourse to woodcuts, as Fox does, we would have images of this as well. And the idea of reflecting on this violence is perfectly in line with, well, Christian belief in general, Catholic or Protestant, you think about the Passion of Christ, This idea of really connecting to those moments of violence to us seems somehow not religious or in some ways almost even blasphemous to bring in this violence to religion. But it was very central to their belief at the time. And so I think this dichotomy between these hellish less than human forces, which are Catholic and this almost divine holy family and these stories that she tells. And she really tries to bring out the individuals and their names and gives them speeches, gives them moments to reference scripture and to defend their choice to die for their faith is very central to this sort of martyrology that she's trying to create.
2: And it is like Fox in so far as he also makes a point of depicting ordinary people and finding the stories of ordinary people. And actually, Fox is an interesting comparison because one of the things that people like Thomas Freeman have found in recent years is that Fox is actually a really good historian. Our ideas about what A history book looks like and his were different and he clearly has a purpose in writing but he's going and speaking to people and getting eyewitness accounts and drawing on them is dowridge doing that sort of thing is she telling a story that is factual or is this a fictional account
1: I think those categories can be very difficult to apply to a text like this. We can get a sense of what sources she's using. She's in Devon. She's not in Paris. So she isn't doing those sorts of firsthand interviews, but she is using published French sources and manuscript French sources that are coming over and that she's able to access, some of which are as firsthand as possible. So she is doing the historian's work in that way. There are many, many things about it that we can corroborate and verify based on our own understanding of the past. So there is something very, we might call sort of factual about it. But of course, the speeches are entirely fictional. Some of the circumstances might serve for her a different truth, a higher truth, which is the defense of God's people and the triumph of God over the Catholics. So it's a little bit of both. And yeah, I think our understanding of what history is and what it's for is very different than hers.
2: Could you give us a story or two that gives us a sense of the individual she's talking about?
1: As you said, the violence spread beyond Paris and she actually gives a number of stories from other areas as well. So for instance, she talks about Lyon and gives the story of Francis Calutz, probably Francois, but she calls him Francis and his two sons. She describes Kalut as an old and aged man who, as he's about to be murdered by these, she calls them butchers, wielding axes, he falls on his two sons crying and gives this long speech, essentially trying to give them strength as they're about to be killed. Be strong, therefore, my sons, refuse not proffered death, which from the Lord is sent to be a trial of our faith. And he cries for the Lord's mercy as he holds his sons. And all three of them are murdered as they lie together, holding each other. Another is in Angers, and she tells the story of Maison de Rivere, who she describes as a famous learned man who had preached the gospel in Paris, putting the scholars at the Sorbonne to shame. And he's in his house in Angers, and a Catholic named Montsorel arrives on his horse and dismounts and speaks to Maison's wife. He greets her with a kiss like a courtier and asks where her husband is. The wife, not knowing what his real purpose is there, directs him to the garden where her husband is out walking. Montserrat arrives in the garden and pulls out a pistol to shoot Maison. Maison pleads with Montsorelle and makes appeals to his wife and young children, who Dauert describes as wailing and crying as this happens. At last, seeing that this will do no good, he forgives Montsorelle for his deed, quote, with all of my heart. Maison kisses his wife goodbye, embraces his children. But Lord, what rolling tears, what shrieks and piteous cries between the wife and loving babes were sent to airy skies. At last, he turns back to Montserrat, who shoots him through the heart. And Maison falls to the ground as meek as any child. What I find interesting about that one is it reminds me a bit of Cicero. This idea of an orator, a speaker who is then murdered in his garden, thanks to a decree from a king or emperor. And I wonder if that's a deliberate connection or not.
2: Those stories are definitely tear-jerkers, aren't they? They're designed to be tragedies and provoke a reaction in the reader. Absolutely. I mean, I only gave you sort of small
1: snippets of the poetry, but she really does lean into setting the stage of these cries, the tears, the embraces, the speeches, this idea that the victim forgives the murderer, It's really poignant to read. Even if you're not a fan of the poetry, it's sometimes hard to read, especially when you know that these stories come from real sources.
2: Why do you think a woman sitting in Devon has decided to write this book about a massacre in Paris? That is the question.
1: (laughs) I think it's a really important question. She is sitting in a small parish in Devon. She is, best we can tell, though, very well connected And there are these networks that I think we're only coming to really appreciate in the last five or 10 years of women. In this case, Protestant or Puritan women who are sharing ideas, who are sharing texts, who are writing manuscripts for each other, who are writing letters for each other. I suspect this is coming out of that sort of environment. Devon is coastal, so I think she's very well connected In terms of what's happening on the continent, I think she's getting a lot of information. Um, Her husband is a member of the clergy. He went to Oxford. He's very well educated. And she is fairly well connected through her brother and her family. So I think it's important to embed her in these overlapping contexts. Why she then goes on to publish it, though, that's the step I think that a lot of writers in general don't make in this period, and especially women and that she has the support to do that I think is really notable and she publishes it in two editions simultaneously in 1589 one in Exeter and it says very clearly on it that it's in Exeter and one in London and she seems to want to make sure that the text speaks to both of these contexts and is read in both of these contexts in London and then more locally in Exeter but we just don't have anything (laughs) to help us explain beyond what she says in the dedication that she's publishing it to maybe remind her brother of important things and then to strengthen the cause of God's people in England. But those more sort of personal reasons and motivations are entirely lost to us. We don't have a single letter. We don't have anything. It's really too bad. (laughs) It's so
2: frustrating. Do we know anything about its reception? I don't know if you have access to these sort of things, like how many people bought copies, uh, how many editions it went into, that sort of thing?
1: We don't have that sort of information exactly, though we can speculate based on the very few copies that we have now. It probably didn't have a very big print run. There are only a handful of copies in the UK and I think two or three in the United States. So it's not a lot, which would suggest to us that there weren't a lot produced at the time. In terms of reception, we don't get people really referencing her. We don't get people claiming or recognizing that they're drawing from her work. We do get people drawing from her work though. And there are very, very clear influences of her work in a variety of texts and a variety of very well-known texts. She seems to have influenced Christopher Marlowe in certainly the massacre at Paris, as well as the Jew of Malta. There have been suggestions that there are similarities between her presentation of Catherine de' Medici and various Shakespearean female figures, including Tamora in Titus Andronicus, and even Lady Macbeth. And the fact that she gives this character of the devil and articulates these Machiavellian ideas almost in a character in her text, this is where her text starts to become not only poetry and history and politics and religion and everything else, but a dramatization. And she has this influence in theatre, not just through Marlowe and Shakespeare, but the character of the Machiavel, who becomes very important in early 17th century theatre, seems to stem from what Dowrich is doing in the French history.
2: It just hasn't really been recognized. That's fascinating. So you're suggesting actually her cultural legacy is huge, but... As so often the way she hasn't been credited for it. Precisely. We talk about Marlowe and
1: Shakespeare, but Dowrich is set sort of behind them. Wow. And dare I say, is this something to do with the fact that she's a one? Oh, absolutely. I think so. I mean, probably has something to do with the fact that she didn't have a huge print run. But how much was that to do with the fact that she was a woman as well? Um, the fact that she was able to publish it all does seem exceptional and significant in the period. But yeah, as I said, she has been overlooked by historians. I think she was dismissed probably by contemporaries. I think that contemporaries saw no problem with the idea of just using her text and not crediting her. Not that there were exactly footnotes at the time, but people did often reference where they were getting certain things from. And her name just doesn't appear anywhere. So, yes, I think we're actually hopefully recovering her and her legacy in a way that has been lost for almost 500
2: years now. And for anyone who thinks, well, you know, that sort of misogyny is clearly a 16th century problem and no one would write a woman off as a scholar these days, I am talking to an esteemed scholar who was once referred to in a review as a lady author. Should we address lady author? Yeah, it's funny
1: because I think it took someone else to say, oh, here you are doing this work to try to recover Dowrich from under this title of woman writer. And you, of course, um, were referred to in a review as lady author. I hadn't really clocked that connection, but I do feel a connection with her. And whenever I read reviews and very recent reviews that refer to her work as more piety than inspiration and dismiss her as artless and everything else, and focus on her role as woman writer, as opposed to a writer who happened to be a woman. (laughs) I feel the frustration of that. And I think we are coming to a place in our understanding and appreciation of historical texts written by women that get us around this paradox that on the one hand, yeah, we can't ignore their gender. Of course, it was very important. It placed all sorts of limits on what they could do, expectations on what they could do. So a feminist recovery does often start from their gender. But on the other hand, if we put too much emphasis on their gender, then we silo them. And we don't understand the other things that they were trying to say that have almost nothing to do with their gender. Gender is just one lens of interpretation. And I think we're coming to that now, which is really exciting and
2: validating. (laughs) And actually, I think that she strikes something of that balance herself because on the title page she just gives her initials AD but if you open the page then it talks about being Pierre Edgecombe's sister. I was really struck by two phrases one where she says I assure you it is most excellent and well worth the reading. And I was like, you go, girl, you know, the confidence of that. And then she goes on to say, if you find anything that fits not your liking, remember, I pray that it's a woman's doing, which looks like quite a neat get out clause. So she's using her gender to excuse any weakness. Because in the 16th century, of course, they did think that women were much weaker than men in physically, and intellectually and emotionally. And so She's saying that she can use her gender to defend herself at the same time as also being relatively unwomanly by 16th century standards and saying, this is great by the way.
1: Yeah, I think the dedication is very typical in some ways. Even men had to say in their dedication and then their address to the reader, you know, pardon any mistakes and I'm new to this or, you know, please forgive me if there's something wrong with it. And, you know, I am just a meek, humble servant and, you know, all that sort of stuff. And in comparison to some of those, her dedication is actually quite strong. I think she does suggest that the content is what's important and her presentation of it, well, might have its flaws, but it is interesting that her recourse to what might be weak about it is her gender and that it is just a woman's doing and highlights her gender in a way that she doesn't make much of it in the rest of the text. But I think it's actually quite a strong dedication and I think she feels maybe even a little bit empowered to write such a strong dedication that has this sense of telling off of (laughs) about it because there isn't a relationship of sort of master servant. She isn't trying to get any position from him. Many books in the period are essentially CVs, job applications. She doesn't want any of that. She just wants to communicate something to him and to her brother. And I think the sibling relationship is evident there. She isn't being
2: a supplicant she's being an advisor. So in some ways you're saying that this caveat is just like when in our acknowledgements we say thank you to all these people who've read my book obviously any mistakes that remain are mine alone when actually what we think is why didn't you bloody spot it you're the experts but we have to put this conventional thing in there. Absolutely (laughs) yeah. So what do you think we should take from Dowrich's French history? Would you encourage people to go away and read it and What does it have to say to us?
1: I would love to encourage people to go away and read it. Unfortunately, it only exists in its 16th century form at the moment, and I am trying to fix that. So my project over the summer is to produce a modern critical edition of the text so that people can go to their local independent bookshop, pick it up and read it with all sorts of glosses and explanations and a deeper understanding of this context. So yes, I mean, if you have access to a rare book section or to early English books online or anything like that, do go ahead and read it, but hopefully a more accessible copy will be available to you soon. And part of the reason I wanna do that is I really want students to be able to engage with it. I think it is such an important text for all the reasons I've said, early Machiavellianism, an understanding of the conflict in England and in France, in regard to religion, the role of a woman as a writer, and how she presents that and everything else, but we don't have students and scholars working on it because it's just not a very accessible text right now. What I'd like people to take from it, at least two things, I think. One is an understanding of women's intellectual life in the late 16th century, that they had one, (laughs) that women were producing texts like this. And though she's an exception, she's an exception that proves that there are many others. And I think that that's really important to keep in mind. I think the other would be just an openness in terms of thinking about texts of the past and not trying to put them into these various categories that are of our own time. It's a political text, it's a religious text, it's a history, it's a poem, it's dramatic and theatrical in all sorts of ways, it's rhetorical, it's a piece of history. And I think if we engage with it on its own terms, we get much more from it than if we try to assess its modern value as a piece of poetry or a piece of history.
2: So keep your eyes open, everybody, to look out for Joanne Paul's edition of Anne Dowrich's The French History, hitting all good bookshops, let's say, maybe in 2022. Thank you for doing that. It's been really great to talk to you about it. It's such a fascinating text, and I think it gives a glimpse into this world that we don't imagine of women thinkers, not royal women, but ordinary, middling-ranking women who were thinking and writing even in the late 16th century. If you enjoyed this episode, please recommend this podcast to your friends and family and do share it on social media. And also, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave a rating or a comment. Thank you.
0: Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.
2: History is full of extraordinary people, the Tudors being just a handful. In my latest film on History Hit, we meet Bess of Hardwick and go inside the incredible house that she built, a house that defines the elegance and grandeur of the Elizabethan age, a house fit for a woman who climbed to the top of the Tudor social ladder. To find out more about the life of Bess and many more fascinating figures from the past, sign up via the link in the description with the code TUDORS for an exclusive discount.